murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. Welcome back to True Law Stories. I'm Garlic here, and today we're going to talk both about uh, crazy criminal defense stories and also elder law exploitation stories. Sad but happy endings with my good friend, uh, the amazing elder law and estate planning attorney from Gainesville, Florida, Shannon Miller of Miller Elder Law Firm. Shannon, thanks for being on. Hi. How's it going? It's going great. I'm excited to have you on here. Shannon is an amazing attorney. Um, uh, so many good stories. We've helped her tell a lot of those stories over the years, but she's helped so many people and also well-known in the elder law community. I mean, fantastic. And also a former public defender as well. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk a little about these stories. But, Chan, before we get into it, let's just talk a little bit about how you became an attorney and what you do. I became an attorney straight out of college. I went to law school. I was in the Marine Corps for a very short period of time and then moved to Gainesville, Florida, where with my um, my partner at the time, my ex-husband now, um, he did his residency at the University of Florida and I started practicing law um, as a public defender in Ocala and then moved back to Gainesville where I worked with a small firm um, and really developed an interest in elder law at that time. And so for those that don't know what elder law is, I mean, it, it seems pretty obvious, but let's talk about what it all encompasses. So the way that I like to think about elder law is really it encompasses the, the sunset part of our lives, um, which can mean, you know, really, um, we still work with younger people. In particular, we do a lot of work with um, adults with disabilities, um, helping them get qualified for benefits, um, taking care of leaving assets to someone who might be qualified for benefits. Um, and then we also do a lot of work with estate planning. We do a lot of probate and guardianship work. Um, and then we also do some trust-based planning as well. Our firm does something called life care planning, which allows us to incorporate the services of an elder care coordinator. So basically we are able to connect our clients with like resources in the community, making sure that if a crisis comes up and they have a need for like a stay in a hospital, that they're getting all the best um, services at the hospital and that they, they have an advocate who can come and meet them there and make sure that they're admitted properly and that they, when they leave the facility, they get placed in a really good rehab bed if that's necessary. And then, you know, really as we age and we face end of life decisions, we can help through that process as well. And then, you know, after people die, we help uh, make sure that their stuff goes to who they wanted to, to get it. To me, it's fascinating to hear about these because it's one of those things that you don't think about until you need it. But it, it, it's amazing how people, right, they, they don't think about this at all, right? It, right, until it's absolutely the last moment, but almost everyone needs this, right? It's true, and it's funny because we'll have a client who calls us and says, this just happened, this very traumatic situation um, involving my, you know, my parents or my sisters, friends, or, you know, they, they experienced it peripherally. And then they say, I don't want this to happen to me. What can I do to prevent it? And, and it's it planning, you know, planning. 
It's, it's incredible how easy it is when we have a plan in place, like with a power of attorney or in dealing with medical decision making. If you have a good plan in place, then you know those things that you wanted to happen will happen. If mm-hmm. you don't, then you can't know that your stuff is going to go to who you want to get your stuff. Your people that are going to be your helpers may not be the people that you you get as helpers, um, and so it can be a really bad situation. Um, we always try and think about that process as being. You know, what is it that the person going through the death experience or the end of life experience, what what would they want? And if we can honor those wishes and make sure that it, it the things that happened to them are the things that they wanted, then we've done a good job. Yeah. And it, it's because and when someone doesn't plan for this, it's not just your money doesn't go in the right place. Right. It, it, we don't think yeah. we're ever going to not be able to take care of ourselves. And that's what we're talking about today, because it's easy for people to get exploited, isn't it? It is so easy to get exploited and people really don't realize um, exploitation can occur when people are young or people have um, brain injuries or they suffer from dementia. But there are a whole range of situations that we've seen where people look like they're functioning very well. They may be still teaching. They may still be very active in retirement, traveling. Um, They seem to be on top of their accounts. They're writing books. Um, They're practicing law. Um, You know, a lot of people may be very good at hiding the the problems that are happening in their executive function of their brain, the cortical insula of their brain, um, that really you can't tell, but they cannot tell the difference between the truth and the lie and they cannot assess risk. So when someone comes to them and says, you know, if you pay me $1,000, I'll give you a million, they go, oh, that sounds great, yeah. You know, like, whereas if you didn't have this brain issue or five years ago you didn't have it, um, you might have been like, this doesn't smell right, you know? So it's it's challenging, and I think what we're finding is that um, really organized crime criminals are getting really good at figuring out who's exploitable and who's not and they're getting really good at figuring out who has money and who doesn't it's so scary and yeah i mean you're going to talk about a daughter and family members can exploit other people too correct yes we often see family member exploitation um and it's probably one of the most challenging situations because oftentimes that senior usually it's a senior Um, doesn't want to do anything that would harm that child or that family member. I mean, and the same is true with caregivers. Like, people get attached. They form relationships. Some of it is based on real, you know, love, and sometimes it's based on someone tricking that person, that victim, into believing that they have this love for them or that they're in a relationship. Um, So it's really, really very tricky out there. Um, We have to be very careful and there's a few things that we have now as tools which include like really good estate planning. We have some good exploitation protection apps, believe it or not. There's some Mm. new monitoring um, apps that are really good Um, and you know really the planning process itself can be a level of protection that we before just didn't have. 
You know, and there's a ton of great information on your website. We'll put a link down below yes. the Miller Elder Law Firm. Um, a lot of videos, and there, uh, a lot of information, and you've, you've printed a lot of stuff out, you're speaking. Um, you know, but you started out as a public defender. And uh, how, what was that like? <laughs> oh, it was so great. It was so much fun. I was very fortunate. I, um, I had some really great mentors in the public defender's office. And what was important for that experience, I was only a public defender for a little bit over a year, but I had a lot of jury trials. Yeah. And right, so getting in front of a jury, admitting um, evidence, um, being able to cross-examine experts and witnesses. And I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> it was a lot of fun going to the jail and talking to, you know, these clients and and so many of them were just such amazing and interesting people the judges were incredible i just had such a good experience down there it's amazing because you talk about trials and i think a lot of people think all of attorneys go to a trial but most attorneys don't right <laughs> no they don't they don't and it's it's hard to duplicate the criminal trial process because if, as a civil practitioner, I maybe have one real trial maybe every two years, you know? Wow. And it's a big deal when you have a trial. Like, we just had a trial last September, and it was kind of during the pandemic, which was crazy. Um, but it's a big deal, and it takes a lot of work in, in the civil world. Um, but really, with the criminal trials, it's much, you have a much less preparation time. You've got to kind of be prepared for whatever comes up, it's, um, it's, it's really kind of like the Wild West. And you were talking about one of your clients too. Yeah, because, yeah your 13th trial, was it? Oh, <laughs> it was my 13th trial. Lucky 13, and we're filming this on the 13th. Not so lucky. <laughs> um, I, um, I, when I was a public defender, I had a, uh, huh, I had kind of a record in our office. Um, it was unusual for us to have not guilty verdicts in, in Ocala um, because it just doesn't happen a lot there. So I was kind of hitting a, a streak of not guilty cases. I had uh, 12 not guilty trials in a row. Wow. Wow. So That's it amazing. Pretty, it was like it got to number nine and everybody was like, no way is she going to pull this one off. And like, it was weird. Some of them were DUI cases. Some of them were petty theft cases. It really wasn't about me. It was about the facts of the case. And what was strange is that I still believe a lot of those clients actually were not guilty. They were innocent. Um, you know, and I, I, that, that may sound very jaded, but the reality was like a lot of times people were being arrested and they really hadn't committed crimes. We went to trial for a lot of them, um, but num number 13 um, was a special situation. It was um, involved, the facts were um, a lady, and she was, um, she was very distinct looking, um, and she had allegedly been in service merchandise, which is no longer a store, um, but she had gone into service merchandise allegedly and taken out a bike, stolen a bike. And they caught her at the door, and they took a picture of her. Um, it was like a Polaroid picture. And she was wearing a pretty distinctive outfit. It was like a print outfit. And um, so it was her third petty theft. And um, we uh, went to the judge and tried to negotiate a plea for her. And he was like, I'm going to give her 
um, 359 days in the county jail, which is really not a deal because it ends up that you serve longer with 359 days than if the judge had just said, I'll give you 365. So we really had to go to trial. Um, so she, um, I went to service merchandise to investigate. And as I walked in, I said, hey, I'd like to talk to the manager, um, you know, to ask about the case. And they were like, oh, no. And, and now you have a trespass warning. So I got a trespass warning from service merchandise. And so oh I, yeah, it was pretty funny. And so I was in the courthouse and I guess the word got around. <laughs> I was on the elevator with some bailiffs and they were saying, hey, you know what? There's a really good sale at service merchandise going on right now. And the judge did the same. Every time he'd see me, he'd be like, I heard there's a really good sale at service merchandise. So it's kind of a, like a little joke that I couldn't go to service merchandise. But we, the day of trial, the, the courtroom was packed because... No one had ever had 13 or 12 jury, not guilty jury trials, especially as a new lawyer. Like, those are my first 12 cases that I took to trial. So it was just, it was very strange. And it was not, it was crazy. So there were a lot of public defenders and attorneys there. And there were a lot of uh, people from the state attorney's office sitting in the, in the gallery. And um, anyway, the case came up and... Um, I, my client, I could hear her coming in from the back of the, of the gallery, and there was a bit of a gasp, and um, everyone turned to look, and wouldn't you know, she was wearing the same outfit that was in the Polaroid picture from the evidence Whoops. that was about to be admitted of her pushing the bike out, wearing the same exact outfit. And I went back, and I was like, hey, like, let's go outside. And I was like, listen, we need you to change out of this outfit. We have some stuff at the PD's office. Like, let's just get you changed. And she was like, no. She was like, no, you can buy this outfit anywhere. And she insisted on wearing that same outfit for her Oh, my jury. God. And, like, everyone in the gallery was just, like, cracking up. They couldn't believe that this was happening. And so, um, anyway, we, we get to the trial. She takes the stand. They, the jury is um, looking at the Polaroid picture. They're, like, holding it up to her. <laughs> They're, like, looking at it. And, I mean, come on. So, were they laughing? <laughs> they, were like, they were, like, seriously? Like, they were, what a waste of time, you know? Yeah. So the jury and Judge Judge Futch was the judge at the time, and he was just kind of snickering, and you know. And so the jury went out. It was a record. The jury was out for three minutes. Three <laughs> minutes. They came back, and I'll never forget this. <clears throat> she was sitting at the table with me, and the jury announced the you know they they announced the verdict, and then the judge pulled the jury to see if everybody agreed that it was a guilty verdict, and she went. Oh, and she raised her hands up and she slapped him on the table and she said, Shannon Miller, you got me a year in the county. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. No. But everyone in the whole place just died out laughing. They thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. Oh, but my God. Needless to say, she was not the most grateful client I'd ever had in my life. But, you know, I did my best and it was unfortunate. But, uh, yeah, she did spend a year in the county jail. 
Well, that, that's a that's a tough one to overcome. We're the exact same. <laughs> My record was broken, I pretty, and pretty much broken for a long time after that. I don't think maybe I got many more not guilty verdicts that year. But. Oh, and that was broken in style. Yeah. yeah it was fun. Um, it was fun. So, on a less happy note, let's talk. Yes. Uh, um, and so you took that litigation experience, and and another thing you do is estate litigation because you have to. And yes. that's what a lot of people don't understand is like sometimes this goes to trial and not every estate planning attorney knows litigation, do they? No, they don't. And I, I find that what is helpful is when we litigate a case, there'll be something like um, a provision in the will or the trust that maybe wasn't drafted properly. And when we litigate over it, I go back and look at all of our estate planning documents and I'm like, we need to change the language on this provision. Like, we need to make this a little better. We need to tighten this up. Because of the litigation side, it kind of helps us to be better estate planners. And then from the litigator side, because we are estate planners, like we know what a power of appointment is. We understand what it means to say you're going to disclaim your interest in an estate. And that's because, you know, we do both. So it does help us a lot to be better litigators, but also to be better state planners just because we're doing the probate and, and uh, trust litigation. Gotcha, yeah, for sure, I can imagine that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, these uh, we talked about uh, exploitation. You were mentioning a few cases of it, and uh, it, it's sad, but I mean, it's good that people have people like you to help them. Um, so you, you mentioned before one of a, of a former military veteran, correct? Yes, yes, Mr. McCadden. And I say his name very proudly because before he, he left us, he wanted to make sure that I told his story again and again and again and got the word out about exploitation against people who really are, you know, they're just good salt of the earth people. Um, Mr. McCadden um, was 85 when he came to our office. He made three appointments. Uh, every time he came to see us, I would look at his stuff and I would say, I want to help you, but I don't know how. I cannot figure out what happened to your case. <clears throat> he had about $500,000. His daughter um, had brought him to an attorney in Jacksonville, and they did this weird trust where basically the name of the trust was our client's name, but he didn't benefit from the trust. So on the outside, even like the titling of the trust, it made it look like he was the one to receive the assets and that he was the trustee of the trust. He was in charge of the assets. But in reality, <clears throat> he was not. And so um, basically we couldn't figure it out. And finally we found in the public records at one point there had been a recorded uh, version of his trust, and which was unusual. We don't usually find recorded trusts in the public records one of the attorneys had made an error and actually recorded the trust instrument. So we were able to see that the trust, he wasn't, he put all his money in the trust, but he wasn't a beneficiary of the trust and he wasn't a trustee of the trust to take his own money out. So we were then able to kind of see where the exploitation had occurred, that the daughter um, had basically taken all of his money. And so we engaged in some litigation. The laws at the time that we started that 
that litigation practice were not great. We hadn't seen a change um, in the exploitation laws that we've now seen in Florida since 2014. Um, the laws totally changed, and they got even better in 2017. And then we were able to use something called an exploitation injunction and freeze assets. We did not have that available to us then. So we had to kind of do a civil case, which took a lot longer. Um, they fought us tooth and nail. They said it was a gift, that he knew what he was doing. Those are the kinds of things that happen often in exploitation cases, um, that we often have a situation where someone is really in a position of trust, and then they unduly influence, or, you know, they, they kind of, like, make you think one thing when it's another. They'll mm -hmm. say, like, oh, dad, we're just going to do it this way so that when you die, we get the money. And then maybe he doesn't read the trust, and that's really what happened in this case. He signed it, but what he thought he was signing was not what he, what he was signing, and no one really explained, no one explained it to him at all. Um, so when we ended up in that lawsuit and we sued everybody, they literally had kicked him out of their house, so he did not have a place to live, he went to a local um, assisted living. It wasn't even assisted living. It was independent living called the Atrium. He lived there for a couple of months with the little limited funds that he had, and then he couldn't afford to live there anymore. Um, we got some funding from the VA. Um, we, we were able to rent him an apartment where he lived. We, he couldn't drive anymore. His, his license had, you know, it, it hadn't been, he just couldn't, he wasn't comfortable driving, couldn't see well, he wasn't really good at hearing. And he was he had congestive heart failure, so he was oh, declining geez. physically. So we would go and get his laundry and bring it to one of our houses. And um, you know, like I remember the year that he died, um, he was in the VA hospital for his congestive heart failure, and no one had gone to see him at Christmas. And I went, you know, I took some time away from my family to go and spend some time with him, and it was so important and beautiful. You know, to be able to see him on that important day was very important to him. And, um, you know, he just wanted his money back. Like, that's, it, it made yeah. him physically ill, the litigation and ha not having access to his funds. And so eventually, we did settle the case with the daughter. We were able to get all of his money back. Um, we were able to get the, the house back. Um, and we were able to, yeah, so we recovered all of his assets, sadly. He, he died about two weeks later. Oh, my God. Yeah. We went to see him. We gave him the good news. We showed him all the paperwork. He always loved us to bring him, a um, like, a Dove bar, like the ice cream bar. He would always say, don't tell my doctor. <laughs> I would sneak <laughs> in a Dove bar for him. And he Aww. just loved that. I mean, he was just such a gem. And I'll, I'll never forget that, that spring when we were – I was with my dad fishing – and um, it was a group, my dad and his friends, we always go in and we talk about people who have died during that year um, at this beautiful place. It's called Pyramid Lake in Reno, Nevada, and it's a fly fishing spot. And we always talk about the people who had died that year. And I talked about Mr. McCadden, and we brought Dove ice cream bars to eat in his honor. Um, he was just such an important part of my experience of becoming super engaged in exploitation cases and understanding how it really kills people. It's not just the money, it's like the process of losing your money and losing your financial security, it creates a physical decline in, in a lot of the people that we see that are victims of exploitation.
And so many people work all their life for that moment and to have that and they just are ready to be there, right? And then you take that yeah. away from them. And, and especially if it's a family member, I can't only imagine how heartbreaking that is. It was so hard. And it's hard as the attorney because, like, I would have to not be personal about it, you know? But I would see her and I would, I would see her in this beautiful house. Oh. And, like, there were times that I just literally was knowing this gentleman and knowing that his service to our country all the things he sacrificed for others. I mean, it was heartbreaking. Oh. And and just then for him to, to not even really be able to have the benefit of the recovery, it was doubly heartbreaking. But I made him that promise. I said, whenever I can talk about your case, I will. And, you know, we've done a lot of, of changes in Florida in the legislature. And a lot of times I will go and talk to the legislature and talk about Mr. McCadden and his case. And it always makes me feel good because I know that, you know, he's probably watching and he's smiling, his beautiful smile. He was a dancer. He was just this amazing person. I just loved him so much. I still that's do. A, I mean, that's, it's, it's a sad story, but it's a great story. I mean, that's, that's the important part about the law, right, is that yeah. we can change things to protect people like that. That's right. And, and that's amazing that you do that. Um, yeah. So that story you know that happened just yes. curiosity what happened then to the daughter didn't get everything back after that did she no no okay. she did not he changed his estate plan and he gave um, all of his assets to his sister okay okay and good. she lives in california and she was like by his side as soon as you know things got to the point where we we knew he was near the end of his life she came and stayed in gainesville with him holding his hand every day dealing with the litigation side. I mean, she was literally his his angel and he was she was there with him throughout the, the end of his life. She would have preferred never to have to, had to deal with that, but in the yeah. end, he really wanted to make sure that she was taken care of. And so, you know, it worked out. That's it great. didn't work out, but I mean, was, as well it, as yeah, it could. As well as it could. Yeah. Um, and there's another story about $10 million being taken from someone? Oh, yes. Yes, um, this case was actually in, um, in outside of our normal circuit. It was in another circuit uh, on the East Coast. I won't say which one because I don't want it to be able to be identified, but it involved um, three brothers and one of the brothers had um, really been the financial helper for the parents and um, the other two brothers were kind of hands off with it and come to find out about over 10 years, um, the brother had taken $10 million from um, the parents. And the, the, the victim was an attorney um, from New York and he was very successful attorney, but at the end of this, they did not have enough money to live on. They literally, the other two brothers had to make contributions financially every month for them to be able to continue to live at home. Um, and during that process, what we learned was that the brother who was the exploiter um, made dad believe that I just need a little bit more money because I, you know, my ship is about to come in with this other business venture 
and it it literally became this um, like story that was told over ten years, but because his brain was was a thinning of the cortical insula, he didn't couldn't assess the difference between the truth and a lie. But what he knew he needed to do was to hide it. So it wasn't until Bill started to be unpaid that the other brothers understood what had happened, um, and that's when they stepped in. And, um, you know, it's devastating. It's devastating because there really was never a time when they believed that could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was very um, traumatic, and, and the $10 million was gone. It was not oh recoverable. Um, and they had lived this lavish lifestyle. Um, the brother and his, the brother, the exploiter and his wife had lived this lavish lifestyle. And so it was really um, disheartening to see that the $10 million was not recoverable. And um, the parents basically um, are in a situation now where at least now they're protected with their future income, um, but they're not really comfortable. So, you know, now we have protections in place. We were able to get things as resolved as as possible, but, um, you know, continuing to try and recover it from the exploiter exploiter is, is very challenging. So it's, it's it's hard. I wish I had been. I wish I could have come in sooner. You know, I wish we had known what was going on a little bit sooner. And that really comes down to the planning side. You know, it's funny. We when we have clients come in and they say like, "Help me! I don't want these things to happen to me." That's when we can start to make. I can say to them like, "Hey, how about having a provision that your kids can lock your stuff down if you start to be scammed or exploited?" And everybody so far says yes. Where do yeah. I sign? Because nobody wants to be exploitable or exploited, but they all know somebody who has been exploited or exploitable, and they all want to sign up for whatever we need to do to make sure that doesn't happen to them. And how, I mean, what, at what point should someone be thinking about that in, in their life of locking that down? Yeah, I mean, so it's different depending on your, your status. Like, I have young 20-somethings, and they want... I just did a case for an 18-year-old. We did an estate plan for her because she's the beneficiary of a significant amount of assets from others, and she wants to make sure that it goes to the people that she wants it to go to. So, you know, I've done it as young as 18. Sometimes when people get children, they need to start thinking about it because they want to name people to be the guardians for their kids. You know, if they both die, and we have seen that sadly, um, it is very important to, to... designate in advance who you want to be the custodians of your children. We've seen fights over that, you know, so nobody wants their families to fight over who gets to to take care of kids. And for unfortunately, we do sometimes see parents die together, like they're driving or they're in a plane crash. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it is important to have to, to think we may not die separately. One may we may die together and like who would we want and we don't want our families to fight over it. So, you know, that's another stage where we see a lot of people come to estate planning. But then as you accumulate wealth, there are certain techniques that you can employ in your estate planning that can protect your assets from creditors and predators. If you have children that are in shaky marriages or you are worried that they're going to get sued for some reason, there are techniques that you can use in a trust-based plan that can protect them. But then as we age, there are little strategies that we can employ to protect from exploitation. So really, there's no set age when everybody should should do an estate plan. It really is circumstantial. But 
I'll tell you, I, we're not unusual in that if you just talk to an attorney and say, like, hey, can you talk to me for 30 minutes about what, what might work for me? We will, and usually there's no charge. For our firm, there's not. If you just want to talk about, you know, what are the potential estate planning things that would be necessary for you. And that's amazing. I mean, and you've done, you've helped so many people over the years. Obviously, you're an expert. Um, I mean, and you're technically, in the state of Florida, we can call you an expert, too because you're board certified, right? <laughs> yes, I am. Took a lot of work. <laughs> it's not easy to be no. board certified, especially for this brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if you don't know, I mean, board certification, can you explain since we're here, if someone doesn't know what board certification means in Florida? Sure, so um, we are designated as experts in the state of Florida, those that are board certified. And really, there's it's like a specialization in a particular area of law. So you might be board certified as an elder law attorney or in trials, like you might be civil trial certified or in tax or in, you know, there's a variety of things that you can get board certified in. But basically, you have to have um, references, you have to be uh, experienced in the field, your practice areas have to consist of a certain percentage, usually it's like 80% of your practice has to be elder law in order for you to even apply to be board certified. And then you take this terrible test, and I'm not going to lie, I did not pass it the first time. Wow. So it was challenging, and when I took it, I was like, oh my gosh, I thought I was an elder, I thought I was an elder law attorney. But it turned out a lot more to learn. And so, I, again, the next year I had to buckle down and really, really study. And, you know, it is, it does, it, what's fun about it is the process of becoming board certified actually makes you a better attorney because you learn a lot of the things that maybe you wouldn't have learned if you didn't have to go through the board certification process. That's amazing. And, yeah, you, you're, well, if you, if you don't know this, yeah, you can't be called an expert or a specialist in the state of Florida unless you're board certified. That's uh, right. So that's amazing. Well, and if someone does want to take you up on the offer, they're in Florida and they need are thinking about elder law or estate planning, yeah. uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? To call our office. We like people to call. You can send an email. You can get on the website and click the send an email if you want to. But really calling our office is where we're going to direct you. And that that is the process where we just do a little intake. We find out you know, a little bit about you, make sure that we can actually provide service to you and that you know, you, you then just go through the intake process and you get a phone appointment with uh, one of our attorneys and then we talk more about what your needs are. And if there is a fee, we do have a couple of consultation fees that we charge for Medicaid planning and for exploitation. But otherwise, it is a free consultation, and then we can really kind of help you see what the options are, and then you can decide whether you want to move forward from there. Thanks, Ian. I hope you have a great day, and thanks for doing this. It's great stuff. Thanks for listening to this episode of True Law Stories with Shannon Miller. I mean, you know, we never think about estates and elder abuse until it happens. So make sure to plan ahead. Make sure to protect your family, protect yourself, uh, pay attention to these things, reach out and get to know elder law attorneys, estate planning attorneys. And if you enjoyed any one of these stories, if you have any questions, please leave some comments below. If you're watching this on YouTube, email us. And if you know anyone else, another attorney that has amazing true law stories, please have them reach out to us, go to truelawstories.com and submit an application. We'd love to have more amazing law stories like this. And also make sure to subscribe so you don't miss another True Law Stories. I've been Ian Garlic and this has been True Law Stories.
True Law Stories has been brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need video case stories for your business. Go to VideoCaseStory.com to learn more.